There's an old joke about how many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? To cha- yeah, change, exactly. It takes three Episcopalians to change a light bulb. One to change the light bulb, one to make drinks, and one to complain about how much better the old light bulb was <laughs> than the new light bulb. That joke about complaining about how much better the old light bulb was than the new light bulb evokes part of the essence of the scripture passage from Numbers today. The story we heard from Numbers is the last of what are called the murmuring stories. The Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt and they have been led by Moses out of slavery and are now wandering the wilderness and have pretty much been complaining the entire time. From slavery to freedom. And now they're complaining. And they've entered this phase of essentially romanticizing how it was when they were slaves. Yeah, we were slaves, but we had food. This food is terrible. So they're just complaining. And in this story... They go beyond complaining about uh, the conditions or even complaining about Moses to even complaining about God. And what uh, becomes clear from the story and also the joke is that people have been complaining in church since the time of Moses. But there's a very important message for us in this passage for people of the church. What happens to the Israelites that complain? They die. So uh, there's a message for the church here, which is complaining leads to death. Complaining leads to death. And I think it leads to death in two ways. In the church, complaining can lead to the death of the vitality of a church community or a congregation. I also think in matters of faith, complaining can lead to a certain type of spiritual death by focusing on what is wrong with your church or God or your faith. And I have to say, one of the things that I love about St. John's is there actually is not a lot of complaining. Or, I don't hear about it. (laughs) Which is an entirely different issue and another sermon, so I'll set that one aside. In the Bible, faith is about trusting God not so much about believing in God. We tend to think of belief in terms of whether or not you believe that God exists. In the Bible, God is a given. So having faith is a question of whether or not you trust God. 
And in the story we have from Numbers today, the people had stopped trusting God. They had lost their faith. And the result was death. But then they repent and ask Moses to pray to the Lord. And what we learn from this is that God responds to repentance and prayer far more than complaining. Now we're about halfway through the season of Lent, which is an intentional time of spiritual reflection and uh, self-reflection. Do we have any complainers here? Do any of you ever kind of tend to complain? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've been complaining all your life. Why stop now? <laughs> you know, I've been thinking for the rest of Lent, I want to sort of adopt a discipline of trying to study myself and observe myself complaining and try and figure out how often I spend how much time I spend complaining, and what are the things I'm complaining about, and whether or not that somehow uh, signifies a lack of trust or a lack of faith in God or in other people, uh, and, and whether or not that really sets me on a path of negativity. And I want to invite all of you to join me for the remainder of Lent in sort of examining yourself And how often do you complain? And what do you complain about? And what is the impact of that complaining? At the 9 o'clock service, we decided that uh, if you were with your family or maybe even friends and uh, someone, you know, was just complaining a lot, you would just start going, just start making snake noises when someone starts complaining a lot and... See what happens. In Numbers, God asks Moses, after the people repent, and Moses prays to make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole and lift it up for the people. And whoever's bitten by a poisonous snake looks upon the bronze snake and will live. At first blush, this seems really curious that the God who is so angry about the golden calf is also the God who asks for a bronze serpent. But I think the meaning, the essence of this passage is God is asking Moses to make an icon, not an idol. And the healing does not come from the bronze serpent, but by looking on the bronze serpent, the people are reminded to trust in God. And that is what opens them to God's love and to God's healing. And so they get life not from the bronze serpent, but from God by being reminded of that icon of God's love for them. This story is critical to the gospel passage where Jesus uses this story of Moses lifting up the serpent to invoke his own lifting up on the cross, and his lifting up at the resurrection. And here we learn something very important about God. In Numbers, God uses 
a bronze version of a poisonous serpent to overcome the effects of poisonous serpents. And in the gospel, God uses Christ's death on the cross to overcome the forces of evil and death. God uses a serpent to overcome serpents and death to overcome death. When we're going through struggles, I think we often look or hope for the opposite of what we are experiencing. But what we learn from the Bible is that what God does is God transforms and redeems the source of our pain or darkness or death and uses it to bring life. An example of this is in medicine. Uh, Often they'll say they have to hurt you to heal you, right? If you have a bad injury, sometimes what they have to do to make the pain go away is hurt you a little bit more to make it go away. So using pain to stop pain. I've heard cancer patients going through chemo or radiation say they have to kill you to cure you. It's kind of a, an analogy to how God takes something and transforms it rather than brings in just the opposite. Has there been a time in your life where God has used the very thing you were trying to overcome in order to help you overcome it? All of this is context for the gospel passage and perhaps the most famous line in all of Christian scripture, John 3.16, which is often considered uh, the gospel in miniature, or people say the entire Christian faith is encapsulated in this one verse, John 3.16. And uh, Perhaps at sporting events, you've seen some crazy person like holding up a John 3.16 sign and waving it around so everybody... (laughs) You forgot the rainbow wig, but other than that... Have you all seen that? Other than just now, have you seen this at sporting events or political rallies or whatever? You see people waving this around. And I want to talk about that passage in the context of what I think is our uh, Christian uh, tradition and the tradition of the Bible, which I think is a little bit apart from how this passage is portrayed in popular Christianity. The way in popular Christianity this passage is often uh, presented as if there is a belief that you need to assent to. So that if you will accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you will accept that God sent him so that you won't be condemned but have eternal life, and you agree to that idea, then you will be given a get-out-of-hell-free card And upon your death, you turn that card in and you will go to heaven and have eternal life. 
we tend to focus on the passage in popular Christianity in terms of whether or not you're going to be condemned or have eternal life. But we forget that the entire verse flows from the opening words. For God so loved the world. God did this out of love. Out of love for us. This death happened so that we would not have death. So that rather we would have life. The passage is always translated uh, so that all who believe in him. But the actual translation of the word is, of that phrase is much closer to believe into him rather than believe in him. Remember, in the Bible, faith is a question of not whether or not you believe in the existence of God, but whether you trust God. So to say that all who believe into him is a question of all who trust and live into the life of Christ, not all who agree to the idea that that's who Jesus is. And that means that it's not just about what we think or agree to, and then we can, it doesn't matter how we behave, right? I've accepted Jesus, so party on until I die, right? It's about our deeds. It's about how we live in the light of Christ. It's how we are obedient to God and how we live in a way that shows trusting in God and trusting in the light. So what that means is that if you believe into Christ, that what you're supposed to do is the ministry of Christ not waving signs with gospel verses around at sporting and political events, but actually doing the ministry that Jesus would do. And perhaps most importantly, eternal life as it is presented in this passage and even condemnation is a present reality. We tend to have this verse presented to us as if you accept Jesus, you'll receive a future reward. But eternal life is a present reality. Eternal life is not just about the quantity of life we will have after we die, but the quality of life that we have now in this life and into the next life. So whether we live in light or live in darkness is a present reality. And we are being invited to live the life of Christ now. Until God's kingdom comes, we are in many ways just like those Israelites wandering in the wilderness complaining about the food. We're wandering in the wilderness and we're given a choice. We can complain about it or we can trust God and live into the eternal life that is being presented to us in Christ now, here, today. 
So in other words, it doesn't take three Episcopalians to change a light bulb. It just 